Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to each of you happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveals how the world works. Yes, each and every one of you happy warriors, you, you, and you, is a welcome part of our community of happy warriors. Happy? Well, that's because you are someone who has come to understand that happiness is not a reaction, it's a decision. You don't need outside factors to make you happy. You have decided that your default condition for happiness and success is a reasoned, determined, deliberate decision to be happy. And you're also a warrior because you understand that joyful success in life comes from struggling against the natural resistance that in the nature of the world tends to obstruct and resist every step you make in the direction of improving yourself. I call it spiritual gravity. You try to get airborne, and it tries to keep you earthbound. In every effort you make to improve any one or all of your five Fs, your family life, your financial life, your physical fitness, your social life, your friendships, and your faith, in all of the five Fs, whatever you try and improve, resistance and spiritual gravity throws up obstacles, temptations, But as a happy warrior, you know that every single victory you win, no matter how small, brings other victories in its wake. And so that's why we are not just warriors and not just happy-go-luckiers, but we are happy warriors. And one of the things that happy warriors realize is that our ability to progress Our very success and our happiness depend upon our ability to impose our own limits on our own freedom. That's right. Everything depends on our own internal ability to impose limits on ourselves. Being able to step off the slippery slope, that seductive slide of freedom, and imposing upon ourselves restraints and restrictions and regulation, that is the direction in which happiness and success lie. Because so many people confuse license with freedom. Licentiousness is doing whatever your feelings drag you towards. Freedom, on the other hand, is what you have when you are capable of imposing limits and restraints upon your feelings and upon your emotions. And where that is so particularly important is when you are being carried along on an avalanche of emotions. Coming to trust our emotions is a very dangerous thing. And a happy warrior realizes that emotions are wonderful 
We should all have emotions, and we should all feel wonderful emotions. We should feel emotions like love and appreciation and gratitude. We should not indulge in emotions like anger and jealousy. Emotions are real. But we don't regulate our lives on the basis of our emotions. We impose limits and restraints and controls and restrictions rather than just acting on our emotions and doing whatever we feel. But even more importantly for today's show is learning that as bad a mistake as it is to act on our emotions, it is seven orders of magnitude more dangerous to think according to our emotions. The dreadful peril is thinking that one is being rational when in reality one's entire line of thinking is being driven by emotions. I implore you, for your own good, believe this to be true. But if you doubt it, just think about the decisions you have made in your life, decisions you made while in the grip of emotions, like anger, love, desire. Remember the time you decided to spend a lot of money on something you now barely ever use? Remember the person with whom you formed an alliance that you later wish you'd never met? Remember the time you let fly at someone and said things you wish you'd never said? These things have happened to all of us who have lived for more than two decades or so. I want to help you learn to avoid allowing your emotions to cloud your thinking. But something that isn't emotional but is entirely factual and logical is that uh, now would be a really good time to subscribe to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show and let us grow our subscription numbers, which are climbing beautifully and which gratify me and uplift me enormously. And, uh, and that way uh, you will, you'll be kept informed. You'll be aware of what's going on. So um, go ahead and subscribe. And uh, also, I would like to alert you to a 10, well, slightly more than 10 hours of video instruction from me called the Financial Prosperity Collection. And the great thing is it's on sale now. Instead of being nearly $150, it's $125, so you save yourself a little money right there. And uh, it, in addition to 10 hours of video instruction... It also comes with a 56-page workbook that you can download and work on as you transform your financial destiny. Um, it's very real. It, uh, it addresses very practical and tangible things that you can do, uh, sets of strategies that you can deploy right away to start improving your revenue. This isn't about getting out of debt. This isn't about how to invest. This is about how to increase the money that you create. Increase the money you earn. Increase the money that you make. And um, with that in mind, what I'd like to do is start talking right now about this whole concept of the title of this show 
how to unshackle yourself, how to release yourself from the restraints that hold you back, and how you can start down the runway and getting airborne in the task of dramatically improving the financial side of your life. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happens as we go through that difficult time of transitioning from being children to adults, and in different cultures, it happens around about at different ages. The American culture at the moment sadly manages to prolong childhood beyond all previously held records. But one of the things that happens as Europe is realizing that uh, you don't have guardian protectors watching over you at all. Um, we are now, for the first time in our lives, as we start reaching adulthood and the adults in our lives start stepping back, we ourselves have to establish the rules and boundaries for ourselves, much as we later do for our own children. Now, there's a tendency we all have, and I wonder if you recognize this in you. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. You know how to do that. You go on to the We Happy Warriors website. Uh, you become a We Happy Warrior, and you uh, let me know what you think. But here's what I wanted to ask you. Do you find yourself desperately wanting to leave your schedules open and uncommitted? Your day is free to do as you feel. Do you either not have a daily calendar or not use it? And um, if that is you, then what's happening is that you are you're wanting to feel free. You don't want to feel shackled. And the paradox is that that is exactly what is shackling you and limiting your potential. The truth is that paradoxically, and I'm going to use that word a lot, by limiting our freedom, by requiring ourselves to be organized, and by forcing ourselves to use time deliberately and purposefully and wisely, that is precisely what gives us the freedom to be creative and productive. That's why time management is so important. I want to urge you to commit seriously to time management. Stand up, look yourself in the eye, and say, now is the time to start getting serious about time. Engrave your schedule in granite so that you could be free to thrive in your work. What you need to do is lock yourself into productive commitments as much as possible. Every day on your calendar should be full of productive work. Block off every day except, of course, the Sabbath, as you want to give yourself one day off a week. Now, many people take off two days a week. Have you ever heard of the two-day weekend, Saturday and Sunday? But the truth is, that's excessive. Really, come on. God did not create the earth, and then on the weekend he rested. He rested only on the seventh day. Of course, many social, family, and health commitments must coexist with work. I'm not suggesting you have to work 24-6. But I am suggesting that even those should err on the side of structure than the side of lazily spending the day on a couch. If you don't have a calendar, buy yourself a calendar. And my recommendation, by the way, is to use a paper one, not the one on your phone. 
Um, start making commitments. Transfer jobs from your to-do list onto specific time slots in your calendar. And um, that is how you will start succeeding. If you fail to do so, your competitors will outpace you. I also encourage you that on the bottom of each page of your calendar, you record whether or not you completed your tasks that were set for that day. It's not enough to set goals. You've got to meet them. You have to hold yourself accountable. And if you have trouble doing that, you need to appoint a friend or a mentor who would be willing to take on the serious task of holding you accountable. Now, there are two main reasons, two common reasons why people do not reach their goals. One is that their scheduling is overly optimistic and you think you can do more in a certain amount of time than you really can. And those people need to set more reasonable goals. The other reason, which is much more common, is that people fail to focus on what actually needs doing. At the end of every day, I ask you to take an honest inventory and ask yourself if you worked as hard as you could or if you goofed off or you procrastinated. I ask you to be brutally honest with yourself. Did you not get everything done that you set out to do today because it was too much? Or did you simply fail to fully commit yourself to working diligently all day long? Take an inventory of what you did that day. You've got to be honest. If you fail to get through all of, shall we say, your sales calls, and yet you found time to watch a funny animal video on YouTube or send emails or Instagrams to friends and played a few games of Wordle on your phone, then the problem is not that you didn't have the time to finish your work. It's that you simply failed to prioritize your work. Happy Warriors, hear me when I say that real freedom is not the opportunity to constantly do as we please, but rather it is the opportunity to lock ourselves into the things that need doing when they need doing. True freedom is the ability to be creative, by which I mean to create, to actually do things. Remember, making money through creating commerce and business is really one of the most thrilling and creative things we can possibly do. We make money. Business creates money, and it creates good in the world. That is creativity, and one of the most creative things we can do. When two or more human beings serve one another by trading, they are literally creating money, bringing it into the world. And this is good. But to be able to earn money, we must set limits on ourselves. We must set limits on our freedom. Earning money requires a plan and a focus on that plan. So you have to remember, children are not the only ones that need explicit boundaries and responsibilities and commitments. Adults do too. This is because paradoxically, there's my paradox word again, paradoxically, to a certain degree, 
the more confined and structured you are, the freer you are. Precisely by imposing structure on your own life, you gain a better understanding of the rules that govern you. Many adults do not comprehend this ever because it's counterintuitive. Because we ask ourselves, how on earth can limitations provide freedom? How is it possible that I put restrictions on myself and yet I'm freer? How can it be that I block in my calendar and that's a good thing? Yes, that is the paradox and I'm going to explain it. The Bible is always um, the, the first place I turn to. Uh, to try and understand timeless truths and permanent principles. And so uh, the, the, the part I want to tell you about is in Exodus chapter 32, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And 32.16 in Exodus says, And the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved upon the tablets. Now, the Hebrew word in the original Torah for the word engraved is the Hebrew charut, charut. But the word has two meanings, and the Hebrew language is unique in that when one word means two separate things, those two separate things have to be mentally merged into one to catch the comprehensive, consolidated intent of that particular word. So it doesn't work like that in English, right? Soul, S-O-L-E, is the bottom of my foot. And it's also a fish, Dover soul, right? There's no connection. Fish, feet, no, no well, or forget about it. No, nothing. And so English doesn't do that, but... Hebrew does. What is the second meaning of the word harut? Well, it means engraved, the, the main meaning, I'm sorry, engraved, marked in stone. But when you have marked something in stone, it's indelible. That's what the meaning is, like engraved in stone. No eraser can remove it. When you engrave something, it cannot be changed. It cannot be deleted. There's no backspace. When you engrave in stone, it's solid. And that's why people might say sometimes, well, I'm going to change my mind. I mean, it wasn't as if it was engraved in granite. Okay, because that's what the meaning is. But what's the second meaning of harut? The second meaning is freedom, which seems to be exactly the opposite of the concept of engraving. Right? Engraving means it's locked in. Freedom means never locked in. I can always do whatever I like. I can share. I want to do that. Now I don't want to do it. I won't do it. If I do one, I will. It's always significant. As I say, when a Hebrew word has two meanings, you've got to merge them together to extract a consolidated meaning. So how on earth can engraved, locked in, solidified, how can that be matched with freedom? What, you know, what, how, how does that work? Well, freedom is not the same as license. License is an English word that means just complete absence of any structure, rules, any kind of 
formal approach in life. License is the origin of the word licentiousness. And so freedom isn't license. Freedom is the opportunity to be creative, to be a creator, to find meaning and purpose and achievement and joy in life. When we have total freedom, we have infinite possibilities to do more than most of us believe we can do. We have the potential to get anything done. But potential does not mean actualization. It's only once we restrict our freedom by filling up our work week with tasks that we actually will accomplish. But following a specific path closes off other possibilities. That's one of the reasons we don't like doing it. We like keeping all possibilities open. This is a, a, a problematic flaw in the human makeup. Well, the trouble is that you more, the more that you sort of keep options open, as it were, that more tightly restricts our freedom. But as we close off possibilities in this way, our lives become more set in stone, more engraved. And this is where the paradoxical effect comes from. The more we restrict our freedom by setting rules and limitations on ourselves, the freer we are to actually be productive. The idle person who licentiously leaves himself free to do whatever he likes when he likes has the potential to accomplish something, but he actually accomplishes nothing at all because it's the person who rigorously restricts his freedom and prioritizes what he wants to accomplish. That's the person who carves his life and his time and his schedule into granite. It's him who is actually really free. People who put no limits on their own freedom. And I mean, I, I know one's got to sort of wrap yourself around this a little bit because first time, first time you hear it, it sort of sounds weird. I mean, surely it's better to just leave everything open and do what you feel like when you feel like doing it. Trouble is, you'll never feel like doing the tough things. You'll always want to do the easy things. I mean, to put it bluntly, people who refuse to place limits on their freedom, people who just roll down the road, who just go with whatever happens, they are, they're essentially children. Children want to stay up all night, though, even though they'll be tired the next day and get nothing done. Looking at it from a different perspective, children who are free to stay up all night are not free to get anything done the next day. They're going to be miserable. But children who have their schedules engraved in stone for them, who are restricted from staying up late, are free to enjoy the following day, free of exhaustion, and they're able to do whatever it is that needs to happen that day. And as adults, we obviously should place limits on our children. And by setting limits on their freedom to do as they wish, we free them from the potentially horrible consequences of bad choices. By setting limits on a child's bedtime, a parent gives the child the freedom to be awake and alert the next day. When a parent puts a restriction on how much sugar and candy the child can ingest, the parent is being responsible and making sure the child will be freer the next day. 
By doing this, parents are also doing children another favor. They're teaching them the value of rules and structure in life. The child can only see what he wants to stay awake. The adult can see how that desire, is fulf- if fulfilled, robs the child of the freedom to be productive the following day. Let me give you an example. I think this might help. Imagine placing a rifle cartridge into a vice on a, a vice when you know on a carpentry a bench. You turn the handle, the two pieces of the vice, the two faces of the vice come together tightly. Clamp a round a cartridge in place in your workbench. Children, your rabbi says, do not try this at home, please. This is a thought experiment. It's not a real-life experiment. Now, go ahead and imagine taking a nail. Hold the nail up to the percussion cap on the back of the cartridge. Grab a hammer and hit the head of the nail into the cartridge. What do you think happens? There's a huge bang and a big flash of light. But now what about the lead bullet? What, where does that go? Would you be surprised to hear that the lead bullet will travel about 12 inches? The brass casing will spring open like a banana peel. And the bullet is just going to plop forward onto the, onto the floor at your feet. But how is this possible? When you fire that same round from your rifle, pulling the trigger causes that same bullet to travel hundreds of yards at a speed of well over 600 feet every second. So how is it that now the bullet just plops to the floor? What's the difference? The difference is that when the round is inside your rifle, the explosion is confined on all sides but one. There's only one place open, and that's down the barrel. And all of the chemical energy stored up in the powder causes the bullet to burst out of the brass casing and fly down the barrel at huge speeds. All of the energy is focused down and out the barrel. All of the energy is applied to the rear end of the bullet in only one direction. The bullet goes flying down the barrel. But when the cartridge is held in a vice on a carpenter's bench and not in the chamber of your rifle, when it gets fired, when you hit the back of it with a hammer, it just causes the casing to burst open. And that disperses the energy in every direction. The sound energy, the sound of the explosion, travels in every direction. Nothing productive happens. The bullet goes nowhere. The difference is that the barrel of a gun confines and restricts and and focuses the energy all in one direction. In exactly the same way, you happy warriors, real power is achieved by confining our own selves. When we confine ourselves and focus our energies in the one direction that it's needed rather than many directions, we can really accomplish great things. Freedom is obtained from direction, not from the potential to move in any which way. Without a goal and without narrowed focus, without placing limits on our potential, 
our energies are wasted, dissipated, ineffective. In our work, we must make our goals explicit. If we have a destination, then we will, like the bullet that is restricted to one option, we also will know where to go. And this applies in every area, happy warriors. I'm, I'm speaking about it in, in business and finance. But you've probably met people who are indecisive and non-committal. Invariably, they're un- unproductive people. And what they always say is they like to keep their options open. A man who avoids marrying or a woman who avoids marrying in order to keep his or her options open in case something better comes along or because they think they may be able to find something else to do, that person will probably never marry, ever. I mean, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking of people I've known who consulted me. And I remember saying to them, it is time to prioritize marriage. And the response I would get usually from women is, oh, yeah, I will get married. I definitely want to have children. But this isn't the right year. This year I've got to focus on my job. Or this year I've got to focus on my studies. Or this year I've got to focus on traveling. Whatever it is. And I I know that they're not going to get married because next year there'll be another thing. Bottom line is, people who say, oh, I prefer to keep my options open. In general, that's a person who is not building, creating, advancing, growing, or for that matter, probably not marrying either. That same person will probably have a hard time investing money because the ability to be productive, whether through getting married and creating a family or investing money and creating a business, it's only possible when we limit our options and we limit our freedom by choosing one direction and one focus. And it's true, you are limiting your freedom. The minute a man marries a woman, he's ruled out all the other women on the planet. That's a limitation. You want to confine yourself by making purposeful choices and following them through to their logical conclusions. Freedom, potential options, they can be traps. They rob us of the chance to be productive and creative. Narrow your freedom, limit your options, choose your path, and you will be free to pursue your goals to their ultimate end. Sometimes we overcomplicate matters, you know. One must avoid this pitfall. We immobilize, we immobilize, we immobilize ourselves when we view our lives and our circumstances and choices all at once. It's a panorama that gets too vast to contemplate. The view is overwhelming. You know, all the things I could be doing. Oh, I could do this and this. And, you know, whether you're running a business or choosing a career or looking for a job or whatever it is you're doing, or for that matter, even buying a car. There are a lot of choices. And by keeping options open, you end up doing nothing. So that's the secret, happy warriors. Unshackle yourself by shackling yourself. That's the paradox. And it is true and very helpful really maybe one of the most helpful things that you have learned today, I believe. So go ahead and uh, control your time. Begin to work on it. Have a calendar. Regularly transfer tasks from your to-do list 
onto the calendar at a specific time and then follow through and at the end of each day put a few sentences at the bottom of your day on the calendar uh, evaluating how effectively you handled your day. Sometimes this is so huge a jump in effective living for many people that I recommend that people sometimes make this only work for, shall we say, two or three days a week. Sometimes six days a week can be a bit heavy. Uh, And then little by little, you add on another day, then it's four days, then five days, and then finally you're doing it six days a week. But however you do, start doing it any way, anyhow. And uh, I want to share with you a brief conversation I had uh, recently with an old friend of mine who is one of the most astute political observers in the United States and uh, someone who has been an advisor at the highest levels of American politics. And uh, his name is Dr. Ralph Reed. Uh, In 1989, he created an organization known as the Christian Coalition, uh, which terrified the left because it mobilized tens of millions of Bible-believing, seriously committed evangelical Christians and it brought them into the political arena. And all of a sudden, it created a voting bloc that made a huge impact on elections starting off. I was most aware of it in 94. That was when it really happened. That's, that's a while ago already, isn't it? Gosh. Um, but that's, that's when it really began. So I... Uh, I was interested to get Ralph Reed's impression of what impact the the religious faith voter is likely to have in American politics through to the end of next year, to the end of 2024. And uh, I spoke to Ralph Reed in order to uh, find that out. So here is the conversation. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Well, as I promised you, Happy Warriors, a little earlier, we'd be talking today with a man called Dr. Ralph Reed, whom I have known uh, since I'm going to say 1988 or 89, uh, probably probably 89 or 90, come to think of it. Um, and that, I believe, was when you were the founder, along with, with Dr. Pat Robertson, of the Christian Coalition, right? Yes, Pat was the founder, and I was the first uh, executive director. Right, exactly. And uh, and it was through you that for the first time in my life, I spoke as a speaker for a Christian audience. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. No, you introduced it. And I, I remember thinking when you called me up to ask me to come to speak for that first time at the Christian Coalition Convention in Washington, D.C., um, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, what doesn't he understand about the word Christian? I'm a rabbi. And uh, <laughs> and it, it turned out to be one of the most uh, delightful experiences of my life. It was quite wonderful. And it's uh, it's led to obviously many, many more since then. But let me let me just run through just a little bit of the history before I get to the question, because the whole purpose of this interview is one big question I have to ask you. But just to to run back. So. 1988, uh, the um, the Republican primaries, George 
uh, H. Bush is 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 leading. Pat Robertson is in that race as well. Uh, does fairly well at the very beginning, but drops out fairly early. And George Bush wins the eighty-eight election, right? Correct. And then comes eighty-nine, and and um, Pat Robertson, who uh, was was a dear dear friend. I the world became incredibly lonelier a few months ago when he passed. Uh, but Pat Robertson had built a, uh, a a campaign organization, and instead of just letting it fade away, he had this vision of turning it into a Christian coalition. But visions go nowhere without execution, and uh, nobody was more uh, fitted and effective at executing the vision of Pat Robertson for Christian coalition than Dr. Ralph Reed. And you joined the picture somewhere in 89, I'm saying? That is correct. It was October of 1989 that I came on board and and we launched it. And um, I certainly had no idea. I don't know if Pat did that it would become the major force that it did and ultimately became one of the most effective political organizations, not only of that time, but I think of our lifetimes. And, well, so you know, very, so effective to be a part of that. Yeah, indeed. And by the time I spoke and i'm thinking i probably spoke for the convention you started 89 i'm thinking it was 91 or 92 maybe somewhere there by that time already yeah, you probably had 90, probably 92 92 i think yeah. it was the first time it would have been i think it was one of your first washington dc big conventions five or six thousand people there um i remember the uh the liberal press covered it as well with uh, the expected hostility and it was it was an amazing event you had chapters i think in every state by then and it was really a, such a force that by 95 and I, I i have this copy of the magazine in my study right here with me 95 time magazine features you on its cover in may and um the I looked at the picture when it came and I said, this does not look like my friend Ralph Reed, not even at all. They made you <laughs> they made you look incredibly sinister and very, very threatening. And the wording was the right or or at least or at least tried or at least tried to. Yes, you're right. It was it was a valiant <laughs> effort. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was in type the right hand of god christian coalition is on a crusade to take over u.s politics and they're succeeding something like that there it is. so um and and really it was incredibly effective uh, you i mean among the many important things you did um you helped encourage churches and pastors to understand that uh, their 501c3 status was not at risk if they spoke their opinion on values and principles and ideas and you you really changed the the the, the entire um game by getting pastors to become involved right yeah we did and um we built uh an infrastructure that that uh, was hierarchical in nature with a national headquarters, state organizations in virtually every state in the country and 3,000 local chapters and got Christians engaged in the civic arena from school board all the way to the White House. And so then I don't know if you remember this, Ralph, but in um, I'm going to say it was in the fall of 2015, I'm thinking October. 
um, Susan and I were at a meeting at a hotel at a, at a Ritz-Carlton in Tyson's Corner, and you were there as well. And we were listening to uh, the GOP candidates for the 2016 election. And you, Susan and I were sitting near you, and you leaned over to us at one point and i think it was it was yeah it was during uh donald trump's speech and you said notice that he is the only speaker for which nobody in the audience has their phones open and playing with their phones he was the <laughs> you you pointed out to us that he was the only speaker who had the audience's full attention and yep, we, we heard trump. we heard several candidates that day and we looked around and it was really noticeable because Susan and I often comment about the fact that, uh, you know, people are always on their phones, even during conversations and even during lectures and speeches. So uh, so we noticed that. And uh, and just a short time after that, on this very podcast, I uh, pronounced my conviction that Donald Trump would win. And I also pledged my full support and encouragement and endorsement for him as president, which, as you can imagine, led to some very interesting circumstances for me in the Jewish community. So it was all of which I can only imagine <laughs> you, you not only turned out to be prophetic, but with regard to the defense of the Jewish people and the state of Israel, you could not have been more right. No, I mean, really, I, I, you know, I, I'm quite convinced that once the insanity finally dies down and America, God willing, returns to normality, he will be recognized that term as one of the greatest and most effective conservative presidents of, of the 20th and 21st century. I, I, I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. You know, we'll have to await history's verdict. And, um, but at least with, from the standpoint of the pro-family and the faith community, we've had a lot of great leaders. Um, Ronald Reagan, uh, both Bushes, Newt Gingrich, uh, many great leaders. But yeah, yeah. I think that uh, I think that Donald Trump, you look at his record on the issues we care about, the Supreme Court, life, support for Israel, religious freedom, defense of the First Amendment. Um, He's one of the greatest champions we've ever had. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in 94, the Republican sweep in Congress under Newt Gingrich, uh, that was largely driven by Christian coalition as well. And um, and I, I remember very much I was friendly with Newt to that point and uh, was very aware of uh, how aware he was of the faith community behind him. Um all of which brings me to my question for where we are right now and uh, 2024 looming um, quicker than we think. Uh, please tell me, uh, to what extent is the faith community involved in the 2024 election? How influential and effective will it be? And uh, is there such a thing as a unified faith community with respect to the 2024 election? It's a great question. Uh, the answer to the first part of the question is uh, they, they are going to be decisive. If you look at the first three toll booths in the Republican presidential primary process of Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, uh, we estimate that 60 to 65% of all the caucus attenders who attend the Iowa caucuses on January 5th will be 
born again evangelical Christians, uh, that number will dip to a much lower level in New Hampshire, probably somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. And then when you get to South Carolina, uh, it's going to be 60 percent of the vote. So there's no path to the Republican nomination for president. It doesn't run through the faith community. With regard to whether or not there's a unified voice, um, I don't expect there's going to be a unanimity or even total unity. I think if you look at the polling today, you know, Donald Trump is in as strong a position as any front runner for the nomination in my career. And um, I'm doing this from memory, but I think his lead in in Iowa in the most recent Des Moines Register poll is somewhere between 20 and 25 points. I think he's in the in the low 40s, low to mid 40s. And I think DeSantis is somewhere between 18 and 20 percent. Um, and how the evangelicals would break down in that math would be roughly similar to that top line number because they're 60 to 65 percent of the vote. So their number is not going to be their share of support isn't going to be that much different than it is for all likely caucus attenders. But make no mistake about it. Um, this is going to be a highly fluid process. It's going to be extremely competitive. There's a lot of very strong and appealing candidates out there, and no one should take any state or primary for granted, uh, including the former president. I know you're not uh, you're not big on um, uh, bombshell prognostications or predictions. Um, after all, you are an advisor on uh, on a political and a corporate level to many many well known faces and many well known organizations, but. Um, uh, if if you were to make a guess, will the Democratic nominee be uh, Joe Biden? <clears throat> Barring some developments that we can't currently foresee and I can't predict. And I'm not a prophet, so I don't know what the future holds. But unless something happens, it is pretty dramatic. Uh, Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee and Kamala Harris will be the vice presidential running mate. And uh, again, without predicting anything, I know Joe and Jill Biden. I, I don't know them well, but I do know them. I've testified before his committee. Um, I've uh, debated him. Um, I've been with him at events. I've been part of a group dinner with him. And uh, this guy spent his entire adult life uh, working to become president of the United States. And there is no way he is going to get to that prize and then voluntarily walk away. It's just not going to happen. That's that's very interesting. And and yet I've got to think that if I was a strategist for the Democratic Party, I'd be tearing my hair out. I'd, I'd really be extremely worried about running Joe Biden, diminishing popularity and Kamala Harris of no popularity. I think they're worried about it. Uh, I talked to some of those Democratic strategists and they're worried about it. Um, I think they're concerned about a very anemic job approval. Um, you know, there's not been a lot of focus on this, but Mark Thiessen wrote a, I thought, a very uh, insightful op-ed in the Washington Post uh, recently that I would commend to your listeners, where he pointed out that 
Joe Biden's job approval dropped below 50 percent after the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul to the Taliban. And from that moment in August of 2021 until today, uh, Joe Biden's numbers have been upside down ever since. And he does not enjoy majority approval by the American people for his job performance on any issue, not the economy, not inflation, not foreign affairs, not the border, not COVID, not crime, nothing. So he is extremely vulnerable. And what the Democrats are hoping and praying for is that Donald Trump will be the nominee because they believe he will be the easiest one for Joe Biden to defeat because in their mind, uh, he's already beaten him once and Trump underperforms among suburban and college educated voters. Now, whether they're right or not is really neither here nor there. That's what they believe. And that's their game plan. And yet the more they persecute him, the more they prosecute him, the more they torment him, the more popular Donald Trump becomes. Yeah, and when you have a New York Times-Siena College poll taken, I don't know, what, two or three weeks ago that mm-hmm. had uh, had them tied, I mean, if the New York Times says they're tied, it's probably better than that. Yes, you'd have so to I think, think so. This race, yeah, I think if it does end up being Biden and Trump, and I don't know what it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns between now and then, um, and there are always surprises. Uh, This will be my 12th presidential campaign. I've worked at a senior level on multiple presidential campaigns. And I can tell you that there are always surprises. And, And if you don't believe me, think about Obama beating Hillary. Think about Trump becoming our nominee in 16. Think about Joe Biden coming in fourth in Iowa and fifth, fifth in New Hampshire and then becoming the nominee. That has never happened. Since the rise of the primary, nobody came in fourth and fifth in the first two states and ended up as the nominee. So just to be clear, anything can happen. (laughs) But if it does end up being Biden and Trump, I think that race will be not that much different than 2020. It'll come down to two, three, four states. And those two, three, four states will be decided by tens of thousands of votes, not hundreds of thousands of votes. Do you think that it would be it will be harder for uh, the left to um, engage in shenanigans, electoral shenanigans in 2024, harder than it was for them in 2020? Uh, Sitting where we are today, I think it will be much harder because we do not have a, a global pandemic that can be used as an excuse to engage in shenanigans like mailing a an absentee ballot application to every registered voter when that's supposed to be done based on an absentee ballot request obtained by the voter. That gave them an advantage in terms of harvesting ballots. They had drop boxes on every corner in every major city. Uh, That won't be the case. We have either gotten rid of those drop boxes or we've directed by statute that they be within legal voting locations where they can be under staff and camera surveillance. Um, and uh, I think it will be a lot harder this time. Dr. Ralph Reed, 
Uh, I'd love to talk to you for longer, but I know that uh, your time is limited and I'd love to have the chance to pick up the conversation again a, a little bit later down the road as we move closer to what I think be an incredibly significant uh, 2024 uh, presidential election. Um, so thanks so much for your time. It's wonderful to connect up with you. Uh, you are uh, running not only your business century strategies, but also the Faith and Freedom Coalition. And uh, I've had the pleasure of speaking for that incredible organization as well in Washington, D.C. So God bless with all your efforts, and uh, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you, Daniel. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. Regards at home, please, Ralph. You too, my friend. Okay, take care. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Well, happy warriors. I do hope that you have enjoyed today's show. I hope that you will proceed to unshackle yourself because on some level, in some way, each and every one of us is handicapped by our reluctance to lock ourselves in to the jobs that have to be done when we have to do them. And to the extent that we can cure that and repair that in ourselves is the extent to which we can look forward to achieving all those goals and accomplishing those ends that lie deep in our heart, things we really urgently desire. And I hope you enjoyed my short conversation with Ralph Reed as well. And um, I'm going to be following up with him um, a few more times still before the 2024 presidential elections in the United States. Um, as, as is true for every major election, um, lots hinges on the outcome. At any rate, even more hinges on the outcome of how you take care of your five Fs. That's where it's really at. The truth is, my friends, that what happens in your life whether you find success or suffer the pain and agony of failure, whether you find joy and serenity or tragically the reverse, very little of that depends on an election, very little depends on a government, very little depends on a president, very little depends on a parliament. Overwhelmingly, it depends on how well you grow your five F's, how well you handle your family and your finances, your physical fitness and your friendships and your faith. And so I wish you a week of growth in all of those things, my dear happy warriors, onwards and upwards, and God bless. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.